we're not going to get anywhere if we don't say where, what, what our position is and, 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 are, and are willing to have conversations with people that may not share that position. Like, what's that quote? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. You're listening to Out of Line with Caroline Lee, exploring offline realities with online personalities. Out of Line is taking a jaunt down to Australia for the next few weeks, where we'll be recording with guests in the Southern Hemisphere. First up is Lucy Fagans, the founder and editor of The Design Files, Australia's most popular design blog. Lucy started The Design Files over 10 years ago and has evolved from online content into curated pop-ups and a gallery space in Melbourne. Lucy and her husband and daughter live in Melbourne, and I went to her studio to record our chat on refugees and using social media as a space to speak about what is truly important. I haven't recorded any of anyone. I do what I do, my intros and outros. I do it here, but I can't bring a guest in this room. But I thought, I warned you. No, this is, this is my, I mean, we're just so, when I try to describe what we do, I'm always like, it's kind of like guerrilla style. Like our life is like that. Yeah. So this is, I'm okay. at home. Okay. I'm at home with this. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so you were, you were saying that when people, um, you can finish your thought and if it works to put it in, I'll, I will. Otherwise the, um, people kind of like find their niche and then they don't necessarily like interact yeah. with. Yeah, I guess if you're used to it, like I live, you know, I've lived here all my adult life, you don't notice it so much, but yeah, I don't know, I guess maybe there's just not so much fluidity around people's working lives here. People decide they're going to be one thing and then they're that thing and I don't know, maybe there's a level of competition that comes with having your niche and not wanting to share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean... To be fair, like the entire population of Australia is like 22 million people, which it, it would feel a little bit more like you have to hold your colleagues and you have to hold like your clients tighter to your chest because you don't want someone else to steal them because there's only a few. Yeah. Whereas in a city like LA or even just in the States in general, there's so many more people that I think there's just less of that mentality of like, I have to hold everything tight yeah. and, and it's more just there's there's enough to go around and if if you're good at what you do and if you hustle you'll get work yeah I think there is also a bit of a aversion to hustle in Melbourne I don't know why like people are kind of like to be seen as a bit understated and not kind of you know putting themselves out there too much even though people do that it's it you don't want to be seen to be doing it so I kind of feel like um maybe that's something to do with it that people just don't want to kind of feel like they're selling themselves so they just prefer to just I don't know. Yeah, it, they want um, they want it to seem effortless, even if they are hustling. Yeah. I think that's true. And I would say, what do you think about like tall poppy syndrome? Oh yeah, that's a big one in Melbourne, and I think in Australia in general, because yeah, it's a small market, and anyone who gets successful at what they're doing and a bit like notable or you know known is yeah, but usually subject to a bit of that tall poppy stuff. I mean, we've I've had a little bit of it, not too much, but. Yeah, it's it definitely that's definitely a thing in Melbourne, unfortunately. Yeah, well, and I've talked about tall poppy syndrome in other episodes before um, of of out of line because um, sometimes when people say like, "Why don't you live in Melbourne?" That's honestly one of the things that to me I love hustling, and to me like so much of my work is about being creative, 
but like I'm having fun when I'm working. So I want to work all the time. And so when I'm here and when people are like, what's wrong with you? Like, chill out. What, what are you trying to do? Prove something or be better than us? And I'm just like, no, I'm having fun. This is awesome. And so that's, that's honestly something that, um, if that wasn't here, I would probably want to live here a lot more than I do just because LA is such a hustle city. And when someone succeeds, everyone is like, wow, good job. You're amazing. We're so proud of you. And yeah. it isn't like, what's wrong with you? Get back down with the rest of us and like take the day off. Yeah, oh. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, that's sad when you put it that way. But yeah, oh. no, <laughs> as in like when you describe that, I'm like, yeah, I wish there was more of that in Melbourne. You know, like I wish it was just like celebrating everyone's success. And I mean, there is a lot of that. Like we try and do that on our website. Like we just like put people on a little spotlight and, you know, try and kind of um, celebrate, you know, yeah, people's achievements but um yeah i guess yeah there's a little bit of competition that sometimes prevents that in certain industries more than others i think Mm. so tell me about about australia in general when it comes to um i mean i guess we're getting like historical here because if we're talking about australia and the history of of kind of how the um at least white people came to australia it is a little bit um about uh immigration and yet now there's a lot of discussion about refugees. And I think that's an interesting thing because America is talking a lot about immigration and, you know, the wall and Mexico and DACA. And um, there's a lot going on politically when it comes to um, immigration in America. But I think Australia has a little bit of a different uh, experience with immigration and and maybe more of a longer history with refugees um, specifically. Can you maybe give a little bit of an in- insight of like, if I'm coming to Australia and I say, tell me about refugees in, in Australia. What do you say? <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's a really hard one. I, I'm not so familiar with um, as a comparison to America, but generally in Australia, we've got a pretty bad history with um, our treatment of refugees. Um, we, I wish I had the, all the numbers in my mind, but, um, you know, we could take a lot more refugees than we do. And um, we... The main thing is that we're actually a pretty anti-immigration kind of country. Like, I actually think America, despite current politics, has a history of being quite open with immigration. You know, the the whole thing with, you know, um, South American, Mexican immigration and the dreamers and all that, historically, up until now, has been quite good. And America is a really multicultural place. Most, you know, um, many cities, you know, are, are really... Um, vibrant in that way and Australia actually is pretty white generally and um, you know immigration is uh, has always been kind of it's always been a minority thing you know immigrants are always kind of the minority here and um, so generally I think that there's a middle kind of mainstream Australia is is isn't used to seeing especially out in the suburbs and away from cities isn't really used to seeing a whole lot of um, racial diversity and so I think people are deep deep in, in a deep-seated way they're kind of um, a lot of Australians probably are a bit racist <laughs> it's sad to say I don't know I don't know if they realize they are they probably wouldn't say they are but I think generally there's a bit of a fear of the unknown and I think that fuels conservative politics we've got a conservative government here at the moment a liberal government and there is a lot of votes to be had by um, saying we're not going to let any more people in, basically, or we're going to reduce the number of people we let in. And so despite there being more refugees in the world right now than there's ever been in the history of, you know, um, time, 
we're taking, um, we, we really haven't in increased our, our refugee intake. And not only do we not take many refugees, we treat the refugees we do take really badly. Um, I don't know how much uh, um, America hears about it, but we, uh, when people try and come here um, and they typically refugees will try and come by boat because, you know, they don't have, abil have the ability to have a passport and a visa and stuff. And that is not illegal, but it, they're treated like criminals. They're kept in offshore jails and indefinitely really. And it's, it's cruel the way they're treated. So um, yeah, I feel kind of passionately about that. And it's, I love Australia, but um, I'm not proud of that part of being Australian. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just a quick side note for anyone who is, is confused um, about one thing that you said, I just want to clarify because uh, the way that you guys talk about government conservative is called liberal, I know, right? which is so no weird. <laughs> so I just want to no clarify sense. that yeah. you having a conservative government is kind of like us with having Republicans in power because it's actually just like the right, exactly. but you so. call the right liberal. The li yes. So the, the right, um, the Republican equivalent here um, is called the Liberal Party. That's the name of their party. So the Liberals are like the Republicans, are like the Conservatives or the Tories in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. It just doesn't make any sense. So I, I just know. wanted to be like, oh, because when you said the Conservative Liberal government, I'm like, that's like an oxymoron. I so know. I just wanted to say. But um, so then, so when it comes to refugees, I guess the one thing that's interesting in comparison to Australia and the US with um, with immigrants and with refugees, whether they're coming in illegally or um, or or not, um, one thing is 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 like you said with boats, like that it, that automatically is such a different thing because you you have no land that people can walk across yeah. or come across in any other way than boats, yeah. and so it almost makes it like there. I, I, I wonder, do you know how many people there are here that are undocumented, um, or do you think that most of the people that are here have been like found, like you said, they they were sort of caught coming here, and so they're in some sort of um, yeah. encampment. Yeah, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but you're right. Like we don't really have a situation here where people arrive undocumented and then are able to work and live for many years undocumented. It's not really possible here because we're a giant island. Mm -hmm. and, um, the the biggest number of people that are currently here quote illegally are actually people that fly here on a tourist visa like backpackers and people from the UK and stuff like that and then overstay their tourist visa and kind of duck and weave for maybe a year working cash jobs because they don't want to go home but they don't seem to be a major priority for our government the priority is brown people mm. um and people that um yeah that don't have I guess a um the, the money to have flown here there's a particular um there's a particular prejudice against people that arrive by boat. The government have, for some reason, like made this, made a particular kind of um, rule that if you arrive by boat, you will not be settled in Australia, which is... Oh, really? That's an actual rule? Yeah, that's their rule. And not only that, they advertise that to the, the main... I mean, Australia's really far away from a lot of places. Um, so most people that try and come here seeking asylum or refuge come through another country because you can't really get here in one go from say Syria or Afghanistan or mm. Iran or wherever. So um, they come through places and one of the places they often come through is Indonesia. And so there's advertisements the Australian government put out in Indonesia saying to people like, you will not be settled if you arrive in Australia by boat. It's, it's shocking. And they spend our money doing that. It's really, really upsetting to me. So um, anyway, the point is, yeah, if you come by boat, you're particularly um, badly treated and 
the government perpetuates this kind of myth that um, if you were a real refugee, you'd wait your turn or you'd get a plane here. Well, we all know that refugees who are fleeing war-torn countries don't probably have a passport, probably have no money, can't afford a $2,000 visa or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's a very different climate in terms of the attitude towards immigration refugees is very different here than it is in the States because in the States, I'm always surprised when I hear about undocumented workers and people that have lived like the dreamers in, in America for like years or more than one generation and now are facing trouble. And I'm like, whoa, how can that be? In, in Australia, there just would not be a family that would be living here and working and able to live and work undocumented. It would actually be impossible here. Like you just, I just, I don't know. That's mm. kind of amazing. Anyway, so that's a, a bit of a difference. So yeah, I think more, there's more xenophobia here, xenophobia here. Because um, because we're just not used to um, you know a high level of immigration that other countries are. Mm. Yeah. So when when there are refugee, do you call them camps or what do you what do you uh, they, prisons? Yeah. Well, I call a lot of um, left wing people would call that would equate them to prisons or jails. Um, the government calls them offshore detention. So the, wow. Yeah. So the um, essentially. In order to appease conservative voters, the current government have, or actually it was two governments ago it was put in place and it hasn't really um, changed. Um, they set up offshore detention, so camps um, in um, islands, poor nations um, that are, um, you know, doing this work on the Australian government's par- um, behalf and being paid a lot of money by the Australian government to host, um, you know, jails and people that are in detention that are awaiting you know, allegedly awaiting um, processing. But there's people that have been there with their families and young children for seven years and, and more. So wow. That, and it's really kind of, um, it's all about not letting these people arrive on the mainland and telling us conservative Australians we've not, you know, they haven't reached Australia, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, um, and yeah, so that it's called... Um, offshore detention centers. So basically a family could, let's say, get in a boat, risk their lives, risk everything to try to find a better life. Yeah. They could get in a boat, make it to Australia, get intercepted by, what do you call them? People that Uh, are... Yeah, immigration um, police or something, yeah. Okay, so they they intercept the boat take them to another island where yeah. they tell them and do the people that are getting put in these offshore centers are they sort of told like this is a good thing you're gonna or are they like devastated because they know that this is like purgatory um they've usually been um fed misinformation by people smugglers so they've paid someone in indonesia a lot of money to get on the boat and the people smugglers will tell them yeah you know you'll be in australia in two days um no problems and um then the boat ride is usually very, um, um, actually not two days, usually it's a number of weeks, um, but the boat ride is usually really incredibly difficult and, you know, lives can be lost at sea. And then I think by the time, when they almost reach Australia, they're, they're usually intercepted. And initially I think they feel like that they're safe because the boat ride is very traumatic, I think, for a lot of them, especially those with young children. So they kind of think they're being helped and saved because they're given life jackets and they're put on a bigger boat, but then they're taken away from Australia and they're taken to an offshore camp. And um, to date, I don't think anyone from those camps really comes to Australia unless they're sick, they've got mental illness, they need hospitalisation or something. And and even then, a lot of um, pressure needs to be put on the government to even accommodate those sort of um, requests. So, um, 
yeah, that's kind of my understanding of how it happens at the moment is that they're kind of, they don't really realise what's going on until they're in this camp. And, and even then they might think it's only for a temporary amount of time, but it ends up being for years and years and years. Yeah. Wow. And how many Australians know that this is what, is this kind of like everybody knows that this is happening, but there's nothing you can do about it? Everybody knows. Um, and there's a very clear divide between people that support it and people that very, you know, vehemently oppose it. Um, sadly, I feel that majority of mainstream Australians um, who are conservative have the mindset that, you know, they just believe what the government says, which is, well, they're queue jumpers. They've, they've, you know, they don't deserve to be here. Get back in line, and you know, we don't want them here. And and then there's all, you know, the conflation of, oh, they're terrorists or something ridiculous, you know, that kind of, um, just that conservative politics, that kind of... Fear-mongering. Yeah, fear-mongering and completely just not compassionate. So, um, yeah, everyone knows what's going on. I, I, although the government does hide a lot of things, like um, they were known to be turning back boats and literally turning boats around and just dragging them back out into the ocean and le leaving them in someone else's kind of international waters. Um, and that's very hush-hush and no one has any statistics on how many times that happens and stuff. So it's known that they go to these centres and stuff because the government wants people to know they're not allowed in Australia. But um, I, there's a lot of um, misinformation and, and just not accurate reporting on the number of people affected, the number of children affected, particularly because that's a hot issue, you know. Yeah. Do the kids um, that are in these offshore centres, do they get any sort of education? Are they getting getting to go to schools or, I mean, do you know what life is like for those people? For many years, there were kids in those centres um, that were uh, kept, that weren't necessarily attending school. Now, the government says there are there's, there was a lot of pressure on on them to not to not have children in these detention centres, and so now the government report that there aren't any children in them, but they actually are still there. They've just reorganised the compounds so that they they are able to go to school, and so they're not considered to be in detention anymore. Um, but they're still affected, and there still are children there. But they're not they they're just not you know they're not calling it. It's all just semantics, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think they can go to local schools, um, but. Um, I don't know the details, but yeah. With the people that are living there, are they predominantly from the same few countries? Um, are they with their own people that are speaking their own languages or is it literally just like mishmash of all different refugees in one place? It's a bit of a mishmash, but I guess there are certain countries that, um, are more likely to come to Australia than others. Um, we haven't seen such a big influx from places like Syria because I think that that over the last couple of years that has been such a desperate thing that they've gone to closer countries. Um, a lot of people from Iran, Iraq, um, there's um, people from Sri Lanka that um, have been affected by the um, Sri Lankan civil war a few years ago um, and that's another hot topic because now the government says, well, there's no war anymore so you can go back. Um, because they've kept them here for like seven years, so there's now no longer a war. But obviously, if they're of a certain ethnicity, they're still, um, you know, being targeted, and it's still not safe necessarily for them to go back. So, yeah, it's um, it's 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 a pretty mixed bag, um, I think, of in terms of nationalities there. But I think also there's a lot of um, 
I think there's there's violence and unrest within these centres because when people have no hope, when they're completely destitute and 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 um, being treated so badly, there's mental illness issues and there's you know I, I don't think that that it's um, necessarily a lot of there's necessarily a lot of camaraderie amongst those people because they're just in such a desperate situation oh man I mean it, I mean even my own my own mental health if you even even if you said you're you have to be on a boat for a few weeks with a bunch of people I, I mean I it would really impact me as a person it would my my mental health would be um really not I, I mean it would be, be stressed I mean yeah. I'm I'm like stressed being on a boat for like an afternoon when it's supposed to be like a casual, you know, schlep down the bayou, but not a chance. Like if I'm literally fleeing for my safety and I'm, um, on something day and night, not sure if I'm going to be able to eat, Yeah, you know, that is a different level of stress to, to go through. It's crazy. And in a way, like that's what refugee advocates say is like, you don't get on one of these boats with potentially with young children. If it is literally not your last resort, you know, it's not fun and games. Let's go and move to Australia for a better life. It's like, we have nowhere to be, you know? So, um, yeah, it's devastating. I mean, we actually, um, there's a really great little, um, small, um, charitable, um, organization here called Free to Feed. It's a Melbourne-based um, food workshops and kind of um, cooking classes kind of um, uh, uh, organization. But it's run by a, a husband and wife team. They're really amazing young couple, and they they work with people from refugee backgrounds um, on cooking workshops and um, food events and things. And they employ people that are not otherwise necessarily employable. And we have done some work with them. We've done some food shoots with them and, and hosted some events with them. And an amazing young guy, Hamid, um, who is from Iran and came here, he's only about maybe 25 or 26. He came here with his girlfriend maybe five years ago. So they were both pretty young and uh, they came on a boat and I, I, we just did this shoot with them. And all day, he's a lovely, such a kind of cool dude, like really, you know, kind of, I guess, westernized in the way he acted. Um, but obviously, you know, has a culture behind him and has, you know, a really fantastic kind of accent. And then, um, he's got, um, you know, he's got, he's, he's amazing. He's a really, um, charismatic, gorgeous guy. And we shot with them all day and we enjoyed food together. And we're just chatting about his, 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 um, cuisine from his country and what he used to do over there. And then we, at the end of the day, were like, so, you know, tell us about how you came here. And it was that story of like, I came in a boat. It was like, there was a point at which their boat broke down and then they were in like a rubber dinghy. And then he was there with his girlfriend and it was just filling with water and he remembers this so like I was nearly in tears I was like oh my god we're all just being like Melbourne hipsters all day eating this great food and having a chat with this guy and, and then you realize five years ago he was that guy on that boat it's not like weird random strangers that are on these boats it's just regular people like you and I so that was a real eye-opener when you really meet someone and you and you connect over something that's not political like eating a meal together or, or shooting a photo shoot together that and then you kind of know them as a human and then you realize, okay, these are real people affected by this. Um, and yeah, that was a real kind of eye opener for me to be like, wow, how, how crazy lucky are we that, you know, we don't have, you know, Australians don't have any idea really the struggles some people go through. Mm, I think that 
what you're saying about meeting someone and getting to actually know a, a name and a story and a face behind a statistic that scares you. Yeah. In you know, I, I'm thinking even of some people that I know in the States um, who would have called themselves um, very anti-gay and would have said, you know, gay is bad or wrong or they're, they're afraid or they think that gay marriage um, is going to jeopardize what they believe marriage should be. And, you know, then I had um, someone that I know who reached out to me and said, um, my nephew just came out and like, what do I, what do I do? And getting to talk to them through their process of like, it's a real person that you love, that you already know what they're like. Yeah. They're not a scary, dangerous person. They're your nephew. And what does it look like to get to know them in this new light and to have that impact your view on the world yeah. and not just like go around making other people fit into your own boxes? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's the thing is like I, I think the problem is that most times we just mix with people that have our own view and it's actually really hard to change someone's mind about issues like this whether it be refugee rights or you know marriage equality which is something that Australia's just been through we just had a big plebiscite here which is like a, a vote sort of um, a non-binding vote um, on whether or not you know marriage equality should be legalized in Australia and thankfully um, the, the yes vote won so now we have marriage equality um, which is pretty recent uh, but yeah it's kind of like it's I struggle because we're often kind of vocal through the Design Files channels with our, with our position, my position, and we're pretty left-leaning and we support a lot of these issues and we do so publicly. And you know what? We actually get an overwhelming amount of support for that, which tells me that our audience and our community share our view, which is great. But then it's like, okay, well, are you changing anything if you're just preaching to the converted? And how do we speak about this in a way that potentially could engage a wider audience and change minds beyond our own community and and it's really hard to have those conversations because people are so kind of guarded and I think when you approach something in a very politicized way people inevitably are quite defensive and so the, the example with Hamed where we had a whole photo shoot together and we shared food together and we just got to know this guy and then that conversation was had is so different and so much more powerful because it's not combative. It's just, you know, a, con a human connection, I guess. Mm. So how do you share that with people that, that didn't get to come into the kitchen with you and spend the whole day with Hamid and get to hear his story firsthand? Um, how do you bring that perspective to people who don't agree with you in a way that they're going to hear you? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, we, we ran that so what we shot with him was a recipe series for our website. So we ran those recipes on our site. And so each story was a beautiful Middle Eastern recipe with beautiful photography. And in our editorial, we did talk about his background, where he came from. And, and you know, it was implied, look what he's doing now, look how he's contributing. And so I feel like those stories, they're not going to change someone's mind overnight. But I feel like if people are exposed to those fantastic positive stories more frequently that that is a really powerful thing because the overwhelming mass media often don't share those stories and they focus on these really sensationalized often negative kind of things so i think in a small way that was powerful and that was the best we could do at that time um, but it's still something i would love to do better and i'm, I'm always thinking okay what you know how can we um, use our platform to kind of be vocal in an effective way about these issues, not in a preachy way, not in a way that's going to turn people off. 
Um, and it's, it's not our core focus. Like I would never call myself an activist in any way, but I just feel like I'm a human and I've got, I'm, 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 I'm passionate about things. And what's the point of having a platform if you're not going to use them, you know, for things you really believe in? Mm. Yeah. Mm. A couple of uh, weeks ago in America, we had the, the March, um, for our lives with, which was all the students, yes. the survivors from the Parkland, um, high school in Florida, um, getting really, really passionate and creating a whole nationwide march for um, gun, gun, not, not like anti-gun, not like getting rid of guns. And I think that's something that's like a side story is in America, um, the right is really stressed that um, Parkland students are just trying to get guns taken away. It's not about that. It's about, about reform, about having there be more balance so that you can't just go and buy an automatic weapon and, you know, it's, yeah. it's a whole thing. But um, we have some really good friends that have a really large following on YouTube and they posted, um, you know, thank you to all the students and to everyone marching today. We see you and we stand with you. And I was appalled at how many hundreds of comments they got of people that were mad at them for being political. And everybody just said, get back in your box, basically, like get back, get back on stage, get back, get back to your place where you're entertaining us. We you aren't here to tell us what your stance is on anything. You're here to entertain us. And I love what you said, um, about like, what's the point of having a platform if you're not going to use it to say anything of value? Yeah. Um, so what is your, what is your take on that? And what, what, what is the role of someone with a platform? Um, if they don't want to upset their, you know, their cash cow, if they don't want to upset, you know, if they don't want to potentially shake you know, rock the boat, we're talking, yeah. um, and, and kind of upset people that might be paying the bills. Um, what is the responsibility of people with an audience? I mean, I strongly feel that if, that I feel personally that there's a responsibility, that I have a responsibility to, um, be, to use my platform, not just to commercial ends. Like I'm not just running a business that pays myself, that pays my staff. Like what is the point of doing something in the public sphere if you're not going to use it in a way that has more than just a commercial reason for being. Um, and I, th- I think you see a lot of celebrities with a similar point of view, to be honest, because celebrities are, these days are pretty um, good. I think generally they're just coming out and saying, I don't care if I don't get hired by a certain director, this is my standpoint on this issue. And I think that's to be applauded. I mean, in Australia, during the whole marriage equality debate, it was widely known that the majority of Australians supported it. So I guess it was an easy position to take, but a lot of companies, corporations here, so the big telecommunications companies, the big banks came out very publicly saying they support the yes vote. And I, I was really encouraged by that because I felt like what that actually indicated was they didn't feel that it was a big risk. They felt that enough Australians supported it, that they could take a stance and, and of course, there's only four major telecommunications providers in Australia. So of course, there are going to be some some of their existing customers that wouldn't have agreed with that. But they came out and they said, we support the yes vote and probably copped a heap of flack, to use an Australian term. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know what? I, I think as consumers, what I did for every time, as in my little way, every time I saw Telstra, which is our major telecommunications provider, come out with a, a statement saying we support marriage equality. I always left a comment on their social media and I, I feel like you have, if you agree, you have to be, be supportive of, of when you see high profile people supporting something that you think, you know, you support because um, they cop 
a lot of flack and, and it doesn't make sense. There's no reason for Telstra to make a political statement. They could keep selling phones, they could keep selling the internet, they don't need to say we support this, but they did and, and I kind of felt like that was really great and it was a good example and if they're doing that, well, who, I'm just like a little blog person with six staff, you know, as if I can't say what I believe in, then, you know, um, then I just think that's really depressing. <laughs> But I think what you're saying about also um, the word that I'm going to use to to kind of uh, sum it up is like representation. It's almost the the people that you are meeting that you're getting to show your followers and your readership like they're getting to even if they don't read every single word. And if even if they don't connect personally with the story, they're able to be like, oh, look, there's a really nice Iranian guy that, uh, you know, makes really great food. And suddenly over time, it's more of a gradual process than with you where it's more of a one day. Wow, this really just changed everything for me. It's more of a of an ongoing representation. And I think that is so important. And even when it comes to representing other races in media, um, that's something that thankfully America is very switched on to at the moment, especially um, maybe if if you watch like the Oscars, there was the whole thing about inclusion writers and, um, you know, other bloggers like Grace um, on the design um, sponge talks about having making sure that when you're involved in something that you make sure that other people have been invited to that the space so that yeah. it is an inclusive space, yeah. um, that there are people of other races and other, um, sexual orientations that they're also welcome. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's something I would love to hear your thoughts on that when it comes to Australia, because I have my own experience of coming to Australia and literally like walking through the grocery store and saying to Jaden, I'll give you 10 bucks if you can find one photo of someone who isn't white on these advertisements oh, in the yeah, store. That's true. <laughs> it's so, it's like, And it's funny because my experience of Australia is that it's actually a very diverse culture, especially cities. Like Melbourne is so multicultural. Yeah. And yet there isn't really much representation of people who aren't white. Yeah. Is that, am I making that up? No, you're not making that up. It's pretty bad. Um, I I would totally agree with you. Uh, Yeah, there's not, I, I think historically that, yeah, Australia kind of, I guess we just... Wait, well, no, but that's the same as America. I was going to say, because, you know, we didn't start here, we came here and we kind of, you know, um, took Australia to, to, to go down a path about a completely different issue. But, um, you know, Australia was um, uh, founded in a pretty controversial way, just like America, in terms of taking, you know, um, land from, from Indigenous people. And I think maybe it's a hang-up to that time that we still feel the need to assert ourselves as white Australians and to kind of have that be the mainstream norm and uh, not to, um, I guess, give a uh, platform or, or a profile to people of other nationalities. And I just think it's about money. I think that if you've got something to sell and you're selling in the major supermarkets and shopping centres here in Australia... The market is small and most of your people that are buying from you are probably white and the majority of the country is still probably white so they just want to show you what you look like on a cereal box um so yeah i i would love to know the breakdown of um of nationalities in australia actually i wish i knew because i feel like in america it's more multicultural i feel like there's more different colored people in america than there are here so maybe that's why i don't know yeah, maybe we we definitely have more um just 
from experience of living there versus living here, I would say, um, the Asian community here is, is huge. Um, yeah. so you have, you have a lot of Greek people, which I, I realize isn't Asian. I just said Asian and the Greek. So I just want to clarify. I know they're not Asian. Thank you. <laughs> but so you have Greek people, you have Filipino, you have, um, you know, Chinese and that's sort of a big thing. And I think for us, we have, um, a lot more South American. We have um, a lot of African. Um, and obviously, we both countries have in common that we both came from uh, Commonwealth in, in our origins. And we both basically took uh, our countries yeah. very shamefully. Yeah. Maybe the other thing, I think the other thing with representation here is that it, it really does come down to money. So you're selling something and you want someone to, to feel like they are the market for your product. And I think it's because you're right. The, a big chunk of multicultural Australia is is um, come from Asian backgrounds, and this is a massive generalisation. But I think in Asian, there are a lot of Asian cultures where they there's still um, a lot of idealism around being white, mm. and so maybe an Asian market doesn't feel alienated by seeing a white person on a box and they still want to buy that thing whereas maybe i don't know in other cultures there's more of a history of exclusion where you would feel in a marketing sense that putting more diverse you know faces on products and advertisements might be more beneficial but i really think hmm. it just comes down to money in the end i just think yeah. it's like who's going to buy this thing how can more people buy this thing you know yeah basically yeah. no well it, it, what you're saying is interesting because on one hand yeah, it is totally about money. But then on the other hand, I know um, some of our friends here in Australia who um, did come from, let's say, Malaysia, um, you know, they grew up being told to only speak English at home because their they their family so strongly wanted to become Australian. Like they didn't want to um, kind of maintain any, any of their culture from where they came from. They were like, we are Australian. We are going to assimilate. We are, we are going, we are Australian. Um, and so maybe there is even just in, in the way that in America, if, if there was a campaign and it was all white, people would boycott the camp. They would, they would absolutely like not buy from that company. They would be like, what's wrong with you? This is so racist. This is exclusive. What's going on. And here maybe it's like, it's a little bit like, does anyone say anything about it? Or, no, or it's invisible. It's you're right. It's it's pretty conservative here. It's funny, you know. I always think of Americans as slightly conservative. I mean, not probably the people that you and I would would hang out with in the states, but I think of America as a conservative country mainly because it's a very it's got a very strong religious Christian kind of um, you know group of people, and uh, I feel like maybe it's a bit anti-gay and stuff like that. But now that you're saying this, I'm like, well, Australia, on some things, Australia is much more conservative than the US. So, yeah, I would say for, for, for racial diversity, Australia is really conservative. And I think uh, people that are not white in Australia do say they face a lot of racism. And, uh, I mean, I guess it just it depends on how visible that is. I think in the States it can, it can be something like racism in the States often has shocking consequences and violent consequences in australia there's probably less violent crime but it's still very much um i think race issues in australia still very much affect people in terms of you know their privilege and whether they get a job or not and whether they get a rental property or not but it's probably a little less overt that you know the outcomes of that racism here than maybe it is in the states Mm, yeah and 
I think you and I probably have a little bit of a skewed experience of each of our countries because both Los Angeles and Melbourne are so multicultural and they are so uh, liberal in the American use of the word liberal. Yeah. Um, like they're more uh, progressive left, um, you know, yeah. not not actual liberal in Australia. But yeah. um, and in that sort of sense, you know, I think that's why like in America, L.A., what, like the day after Trump was elected, I mean, people's mouths were just like on the floor and they just, every single one of them said like, I don't even know anyone who voted for Trump. And I'm like, that's because LA is like a tiny little bubble and you forgot that there's a huge country here and yeah. that lots of people aren't like you. Yeah. So I think that America is conservative in, in a lot of ways, especially certain areas. Um, but that also doesn't mean that the at least where content is being created, like in the major cities where, um, you know, media is being, is being made, whether it's, um, the YouTube offices or the, you know, Hollywood or whatever it is, those areas that are creating what America sees are all more aware of things like inclusion. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Cause I, I think for me, um, I like to compare, America and Australia, not in like which one's better, but I just like to learn from each of the countries and what they do. That's kind of like doing it well and doing it right. Yeah. Um, and so I like, I like being able to be like, huh, where did that come from and why? Yeah. I'm always kind of just like chewing on it. Yeah. So, so, okay. So let's, so you're saying that people that have a platform have some responsibility when it comes to other people and, and sort of, um, not necessarily becoming political, but at least using their voices to say something. What about people who let's say don't have a huge platform, but are either curious about researching, let's say refugees, what's going on? Where do you even look? Where do you get your information about this stuff and how can people get involved if they don't have a huge platform of people listening to what they have to say? Well, I actually think I think we all individually have response have some responsibility regardless of whether we have a platform or not. I think, you know, in in there's a lot of documented um, situations such as the marriage equality vote where, you know, even just speaking to your parents or your parents-in-law or your, you know, grandparent is really powerful and in fact probably more powerful than um, than it coming in a very kind of um, politicized way from a media organization so I think every conversation you have on any level no matter who you are is, is a powerful thing and I think we're seeing that more than ever I mean if you look at um, what is happening in the states regarding gun control now I'm the whole world has been watching that and going oh my god finally there seems to be some traction here even Obama couldn't really get any movement here and we've got a handful of kids that are doing it and and it's so inspiring to me and and it's almost like wow it is possible to 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 make change and those are just kids that had you know that really came from nowhere um so I think that is an inspiring thing and it shows how important it is to, to, to use your voice no matter how loud your voice is. Um, I think, as you said, you still need to research and have some clue what you're talking about. Like, you, you, it's really easy to get on your soapbox and, um, and also with the whole era of fake news, if you're getting your, you know, info from Facebook, you know, just check Oof. it before you go forwarding <laughs> random stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, you do have a responsibility to research and... Uh, you know, in Australia, there's organisations that that do a lot of impartial research on on the asylum seeker and refugee issue um, 
which kind of we access whenever we've worked with them or done any fundraising on their behalf. But um, I think more generally, it's just about being a human, like not being like not feeling like you can't say if, if you're passionate about something, like even on your own personal social media channels. And if you've got like 20 friends, like why do we feel oh, I shouldn't say I'm voting yes for marriage equality? Or I probably shouldn't say. Like, why do we feel that way? Like, what are you on the planet for? You're only here for, like, you know, 90 years. Are you just that worried about offending someone that you hardly know? You know, I don't know. I just feel like we're not going to get anywhere if we don't say where, what we're, what our position is and, 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 are, and are willing to have conversations with people that may not share that position. Like, what's that quote? If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. The point is you have to um, push things forward in even the most tiny increments and that is more powerful than than you think and I think we all should be doing that because now more than ever I think we're learning that governments don't always have our best interests at heart big organizations such as Facebook and Google don't necessarily have our best you know um, have the best outcomes at heart so I really think it's time it's it's this kind of I feel like there's this revolutionary spirit now where it's really comes down to the individual more than ever and so you know we're more powerful than we think we are and if you look at what's happening with the gun control stuff in the states the gun lobby are terrified of those kids now and that's why they're really reacting strongly and 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 pulling out everything they can to kind of um, undermine these kids and it's because it's working you know 10 kids that got together after this horrific massacre have have really captured so many people and that's such a powerful thing and if it wasn't working they wouldn't be you know facing you know what they're facing at the moment so those kids are amazing Mm, it's pretty inspiring um when they when they did like their their first like public push I was just like crying and crying. I was just like oh my word look at them they're so inspiring they're so amazing I, and especially with what they've been through know. you know to just be like um think about how many other school shootings there were that didn't result in that and it just happened to be this group of kids that said this one is this is it enough like this is enough. yeah enough is enough. it's it's so inspiring it makes me very very proud and hopeful and you know there are days that I'm like I can't my friends in America that have kids and send their kids to school every day. I'm like, I don't know how you do that because if I had kids, I would probably be homeschooling them because I would be like terrified of school shootings with the way that situations are right now. I mean, I don't know if your American listeners would be aware. I feel like there's often a lot of comparisons you see between Australia and America in regards to gun control, because in Australia, no one has a gun, literally no one, like (laughs) unless you're a, a cop. You just don't have a gun. No one has a gun. Or, you know, maybe if you live on a farm, you may have one. But it's just not a culture here. And it is crazy to me, as anyone that lives in a country like ours looks at America and goes, wait, hold on. People have guns in their lounge rooms? Like, that is so weird to us, you know. So it's like, how do you break that kind of culture? I don't know. But, yeah, it's um, it's it's just, it just really comes down to um, experience and what you, I, I don't know. Just leave that thought there. No, no. Well, because you guys, um, you guys had, you did used to have guns. Um, What was it? 99? But still, most people didn't have one. But yeah, you could legally buy a gun. And uh, then there was a um, massacre in a tourist spot in Tasmania. And 
the government at the time, who were actually a conservative government, just literally overnight or, you know, that week just put through um, a heap of changes so that to, to avoid anyone really being able to buy, you know, those kind of um, guns. There was a big gun amnesty, so people had to give their guns back. They got them bought back by the government and they were all, like, melted down. And it was just done and we haven't had one since, you know. And so it is possible um, and that just takes good leadership, mm. you know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in America because I think the the there is such a polarized perspective on guns and the people who really love guns really, really love guns. And they, I think that they would rather have civil war than give them up if there was an amnesty. Like, I'm not joking. Like, they are so into their guns that they would just be like, I would rather die. Yeah, that's kind of defeats purpose, doesn't it? You've got a gun, but you'd be happy to die for your gun. It's very, it's it's very, and that's what I'm saying. That's what that's what I'm saying about America being so big that there are just people that you're just like, yeah, you're not like the people in L.A. and Melbourne, but you know you're still American, so yeah, it's interesting. But um, but yeah, anyway, so in in when it goes when it um, when it comes to responsibility and just using, um, using your voice and also researching well so that the things that you actually believe and share are not just uh fake news yeah because there's a lot of that um there's even you can even edit video now to make it look real um like it's really terrifying i hope facebook get in some serious trouble like i love facebook i use it for my work i love it for my you know i use it in a personal way but i'm like they have so much responsibility to keep this keep it you know like to just be aware of what's being shared on that channel and they're not only not doing a great job of that they're benefiting by massive amounts of dollars that are coming their way for people to you know uh share very questionable information across that platform and i think it's really wrong Mm. well thanks for thanks for using your uh your channels to um bring awareness and you know even like this conversation came from me um even thinking to myself, I wonder how much of your activism when it comes to refugees is just on Facebook with you and your private life and how much of it is more of your platform. And so, um, yeah, I love, I love hearing about that. And, and I've learned so much even in this, cause I know a little bit about refugees and that being a constant word that gets brought up in Australia, but not fully understanding what's going on in, in the real story. Yeah. I hope that I have enough information but anyways I guess it's just for me it's a very personal thing I just feel like I, I have a particular kind of um, compassion for refugees and, and people who are fleeing war and I mean you'd think that would, most people would um, and so yeah I just we, we haven't done heaps and heaps but we, when we can we kind of vocal about our position on the issue and, and I just think um, it's it's kind of a no-brainer for me. It's actually impossible for me not to be honest. I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and it would be harder for, for me to just making content that's beautiful, that's, you know, visual, that doesn't really have, um, you know, a, a meaning beyond, you know, that. And I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting older and a little bit wiser and realising, well, there's more to, you know, having a voice than, than just pretty pictures on the internet. <laughs> I love it. Stick around for part two of this discussion to hear a Q&A with Lucy Fagans about her social media practices. This episode of Out of Line was produced by me, Caroline. 
All sound editing, engineering, and original music composition by Jaden Lee. And a big thank you to Cat Footwear for working with Out of Line this season. Hit subscribe to get the next episode on your mobile device when it drops next week. And if you love what you heard, please whip out a review, will ya?